Welcome everyone to the Two Tongues Podcast. Consider this your invitation to join Kyle and Chris on a journey through our minds. Where we explore the questions that have fascinated us for as long as we can remember. Could anarchy actually work? Does God exist? And just how did the cosmos get here anyway? Let me be the Virgil to your Dante, the Sacagawea to your Lewis and Clark. Let's take the guided tour through the dark chambers of our unconscious, seeking answers to the most important and unsettled questions of our shared existence. Ready or not, here we go. Hello, hello, everyone. Thank you for joining me. Another episode of the Two Tongues Podcast. On today's episode, um, well, surprise, surprise, it's another solo, guys. So we're going to be talking about religion again. Um, sorry, not sorry. That's my favorite topic. So that's what we're going to do. Uh, this time, what I wanted to do is I mentioned before that there's a lot of um, a lot of different religious traditions, you know, apart from uh, Christianity, that uh, that get into that mystic stuff that we've been talking about. Uh, way, way more directly. And I didn't want to beat around the bush. I wanted to jump right into the deep end. And so what I did was I picked uh, Hinduism, not just Hinduism, although um, I told you guys before, that's the basically the oldest uh, continuously practiced religion in the world. You know, it goes back 5,000 years, but perhaps, perhaps much later than that, uh, you know, in it's like early forms. So it's very, very ancient, um, but there's a kind of a branch of Hinduism. It's called uh, Vedanta, and um, you know when we talk about uh, Asian religions, whether we're talking about um, Buddhism or Taoism or Confucianism or Hinduism, um, there's kind of like a kind of like a shaky line there between calling it a religion and calling it a philosophy. Uh, I think there's. Uh, you could say that about Christianity too, and uh, you know, there's um, a whole lot of a uh, whole lot of people that that kind of wax poetic about uh, the meaning behind the uh, the scriptures and that kind of uh, building a philosophy that way. It's consistent and adding, you know, ideas or or conclusions uh, that you take from the scripture that aren't in there that you're kind of I don't want to say making up, but that you're flushing out and calling it philosophy or religious philosophy. You know, this is something that all religions do, you know, that are of sufficient age. Um, you know, maybe we haven't, maybe we haven't done that with, uh, with Dianetics yet. You know, maybe we haven't done that with Scientology yet. It's just too damn new, but all the ancient stuff, you know, we do. And the, in the Hindus, um, you know, there's several branches of philosophy, but this, uh, Vedanta is one of them. It's my favorite. Um, it dates back, you know, it was written, I, t I mentioned this before, it was written over uh, several hundred years, um, from 800 to 400 BC or thereabouts. So Hinduism had been around for a long time uh, already before this uh, Vedanta stuff um, uh, came out, you might say. Um, and, and it really starts with um, a holy book called the Upanishads, and we've talked about that a little, but we're going to get into it today. Before I jump into all that, though, I want to I mention something. And this is not a paid advertisement, obviously, but uh, I just thought, since I got an audience, I'll share this with you. 
uh, anybody who has an interest in this stuff, whether it just be, um, you know, religion or philosophy, um, if you have an interest in it, there's a website. It's called sacredtexts.com. There's a hyphen between them, so sacred-texts.com. Um, text is plural. I know it doesn't come across great uh, in the audio. Text, T-E-X-T-S. So it's plural. Sacred-text.com. If you go there, there's a guy there named um, named John Hare. Um, for years and years, he basically spent all of his free time and uh, his, you know, uh, his own money and his own time compiling a bunch of these sacred books that are not uh, covered by a copyright. So basically he wanted to make available to anybody who was interested um, all the different holy books from all over the world. Um, and so you can go to sacredtext.com and you can read the Upanishads. You can read any of the stuff that we're talking about and it's available completely free. Uh, John Hare died of cancer in 2010, so I don't think there's been a whole lot added to the website since 2010, and that's and that's sad. Uh, I used to I used to check sacred texts every day in the morning when I got to work, like I was checking the news to see what, what was new, and there was always something new popping up. Uh, but we haven't seen much since John died, and you know the website's still up and running, and you know there are obviously good people who are keeping it going. Uh, but I'd encourage you to check it out if it's interesting to you. Um, that's been, you know, a wealth of of information for me, and it's free. All right, so um, so I do want to talk about Hinduism in the context of the kind of mystic understanding of God that we've been talking about. And um, just to refresh your memory, when I talk when I use the word mystic, I'm talking about the the types of religious experiences that people have that are dramatically powerful, that are life-changing, uh, the kind of things that people write about, um, that, uh, you know, they were never the same after they had that, that experience. And some of those, some of those experiences are, um, you know, they're ordinary religious experiences. Some of them are, um, drug induced or, or induced by some other, uh, psychophysiological means like, meditation or yoga or starvation or, you know, people do fasting for this sort of thing, um, where you can achieve a certain type of experience that is unlike anything else. And, um, and the Hindus really seem to have done that because when I start getting into this stuff, you're going to see, it's almost like somebody who had a psychedelic experience and had one of these one with the universe experiences that people talk about, like somebody like that, um, wrote this stuff because it's hard to, it's hard to avoid when you, when I start reading it, you're going to see what I mean. Um, and I've done a, a couple things in, uh, maybe like a ordinary Chris fashion is tried to try to structure this a little bit like a story. And I'm, I'm including with the stuff, uh, from the Upanishads that we're going to talk about these scriptures. I've included things that I find interesting that are, that are, related to it from other religions and uh some of that's christianity so i'll do my best and i i want to do one of these on taoism as well but what you'll notice is with um with this uh vedanta hinduism and um with the uh with the taoist religion in china there's a lot of overlap it's a lot of similar language so i'm going to use i'm going to plug in some of these taoist uh quotes as well so you can see what what i'm talking about all right so I'm going to do a little bit of an intro before I get started. Um, for those who don't know, uh, Hinduism has like their main holy texts. Uh, there's several. Um, they're called the Vedas. The Vedas. Um, uh, after the Vedas were written, the Upanishads were written, and that's what we're going to talk mostly about today. 
uh, the reason I bring it up is I, I used the word Vedanta earlier. That's that like the word that they use for the type of religious philosophy that we're going to talk about, the, the interpretation of the Vedas that's mystical, and we're going to get into that. But in, um, in the um, language, and uh, forgive me, uh, forgive my ignorance, I know there's several languages spoken in India. I don't know which one uh, Vedanta is associated with. Um, but in any case, it means the end of the Vedas. So you might think of that like, like the book of Revelation or something like this is the, this is the uh, end all be all. This is the capstone of their religious tradition that started with the Vedas and ends. It gets wrapped up um, in this interpretation of the Upanishads that's called Vedanta, the end of the Vedas. This is it. This is the final interpretation. This is this is the truth, according to the Hindus. Um, okay, so starting from the beginning, I mentioned about Hinduism before that. Um, they have a kind of a trinity um, in their uh, pantheon. You know, the gods they worship are really all going to fall back into three main gods. And you've heard people say, I'm sure, that Hinduism has you know tens of thousands of deities, and that's true for all sorts of reasons. But I think it's also true to say that every one of those supernatural creatures and deities from their from their pantheon, from their religion. They're considered to be like manifestations of one of these three gods. So all of those thousands and thousands and thousands of gods that they might talk about, they all kind of roll back up into either Brahma, Shiva, or Vishnu. And so this is the Trinity. This is the Hindu Trinity, kind of like our Father, Son, and Holy Ghost. Brahma is the creator, Shiva is the destroyer, and Vishnu is the preserver. So you kind of see this cycle of life and death, the cycle of creation and destruction that we see in the universe. You might just wrap all that up in, in, a, in, in a symbol, in an, in an analogy, and call it this trinity, Brahma, Shiva, and Vishnu. So that's traditional Hinduism. Um, you know, that's what you would see in the Vedas, let's say. Um, in the Upanishads, so again, we're talking, we're going from like four, three, 4,000 BC all the way up to 800 BC. So we're talking about a lot of time gone by. But by the time you get to the Upanishads, um, we're not talking about Brahma, Shiva, and Vishnu in that way anymore. And the reason is that we kind of, just like I told you before, where all the tens of thousands of gods get rolled up into the Trinity here, um, the Trinity, Brahma, Shiva, Vishnu, they actually get rolled up themselves into Brahma. So, so what you've got really is, is one God. And I think that's probably a controversial statement to say about, about Hinduism. And, you know, probably there are some Hindus that would disagree with me and a bunch of other academics that will absolutely disagree with me. Um, but you know, it is what it is. This is, this is what I, what I believe, um, in my interpretation that, uh, when you read the Upanishads, you absolutely see this, that, um, that Brahma is considered the kind of the, the only God. Um, all of the other gods are sort of manifestations of Brahma. And, um, and then when, and when we get into the Upanishads, there's another word that creeps into the language, so I just have to talk about it for a second. Um, they talk about Brahman, and Brahma, again, is the creator God. Um, and then they also talk about Atman, so Brahman and Atman. Um, and, and I'll give you just a high-level interpretation of this, so you can imagine it like this. Imagine that uh, God is Brahman, and the spirit of God is, is Brahman. And that spirit gets shared with all of the creatures that God creates. So, like, he imbues his creation with himself. 
So you might you might say you know God breathed life into the into the world, and the breath that He breathed in was His spirit. So in in reality, in the material world, you have creatures like you and me, and we are alive and existing in the world as something called Atman. It's like a personal spirit. It's like the soul of the individual, and then Brahman is the soul of God. But here's the thing: they don't they don't believe that there's a difference between Brahman and Atman. So you've got these different words that talk about, you know, the spirit of God versus the spirit of man, let's say. Um, but the whole the whole sort of focus of the Upanishads is coming to terms with understanding what Brahman and Atman are and kind of understanding them to be not not distinct from each other, that they're really just one thing. Um, and that's the, like, that's the religious epiphany of, of uh, the Upanishads is to realize that. Um, so Brahman... Atman. Um, that's also related, by the way, to the uh, idea of reincarnation, which we hear about in, in Hinduism and Buddhism, um, where, you know, you, you you can just imagine you die, your soul goes up and joins, you know, the soul of God. So you die, your Atman leaves your body and goes back to Brahman and goes back to where it came from. And then somebody else is born and that spirit leaves Brahman and comes back into into the world as another Atman. So you've got this cycle of souls getting recycled from God back to back to you know the material world and so forth. So this is this is a good way of understanding that uh, Brahman and Atman thing from the perspective of reincarnation. Um, last thing I want to talk about as far as Hinduism goes before I jump into this is um, there's a lot of meditating going on in Hinduism. You know that that's where like the, the tradition of yoga comes from and um, you know ch- chanting and meditating obviously has very ancient roots in in uh, India. And one of the things that they do is they meditate on uh, on a sound. And you guys may have seen this, or you may have, maybe you've seen this. You know, somebody's got the tattoo uh, uh, of of the Om, the Om. And there's a Hindu character, a Sanskrit character that that represents Om. And so what you'll what you'll hear is, and you maybe remember this from a documentary or from a movie, but somebody's sitting there, Indian style, with their you know, with their hands curled up on their knees and their eyes are closed and they're and they're humming, um, um, that kind of thing. So, what's that all about? What is that all about? I'm about to tell you. So, Om is supposed to represent basically all of the vowels together. So, it's kind of a symbol of all of the you know the vowels basically allow you to speak you know if we only had consonants uh, we, we really couldn't speak we have to break up those consonant sounds with vowels to form words um, this so the idea is the vowels are very important they're what makes speech possible and if we if we, med- if we meditate on all of them together a e i o u that somehow that sound is om o m okay um so, so meditating on the idea of Om is, is basically meditating on all of the vowels together. And, and I think, symbolically, that's supposed to get you thinking about um, merging things together in your mind. Merging the idea of Brahma, Shiva, Vishnu into one. Merging the idea of your Brahman and Atman, the God and man, together. Merging them together and concentrating them on something uh, as if they're one. That it's not an easy thing to do. It's not straightforward. But if you do it sort of symbolically, you know, we're beating around the bush on purpose here and focusing on Om and, and thinking about that in terms of language. But in the back of our minds, subconsciously, this is intended to open up the gates of understanding things together. And the more you do that, the more you meditate on this, you know, um, 
this confluence, this merging of, of ideas, uh, the more spiritually enlightened you become. Something like that. All right, so I did mention that I've peppered in here uh, quotes along with, you know, f- scriptures from the Upanishads. I've peppered in quotes from Christianity, from Taoism, from Buddhism. Um, this, the, the stuff that I talk about in, from Christianity, some of this stuff you guys may recognize, some of it you might not. The reason is um, that I, I sort of intentionally picked the Gospel of Thomas to take some of these quotes from. So some of you might be scratching your head, flipping through your Bible. Where is this Gospel of Thomas you speak of? Well, it's not in your Bible. You're not going to find it there. Uh, the Gospel of Thomas is a Gnostic Gospel. It was a, a Gospel that was written by a group of Christians early, early on. And in fact, there's some evidence that the Gospel of Thomas is the oldest Gospel historically. It was written down before any of the others. And we basically uncovered this Gospel in Egypt it was written in Coptic, which is this you know ancient um, ancient uh, language that's related to the ancient Egyptian, but also some of the the, the modern Egyptian language, and uh, it was actually what was used to crack the code of the um, uh, uh, hieroglyphs. By the way, so if you guys have heard that story, there was a uh, a stone, and the name escapes me now, but it had a passage written in Greek, a passage written in in, uh, in Coptic, and a passage written in um, Hieroglyphs, and they were all the same passage. So they they used ah the Rosetta Stone just occurred to me. So they used this Rosetta Stone to kind of finally crack the code of what the hieroglyphics meant, and they could only do that because they knew that the language the ancient Egyptians were speaking when they actually opened their mouth and spoke words that that was something very much like what the Coptics in Egypt were speaking, and that 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 Coptic has to, is the name of the language. Uh, but you may have also heard about Coptic Christians. So. There, there are people, um, small group obviously in Egypt that are being persecuted right now. You know the um, uh, extremist Muslim groups there. Um, you know they, they're not nice to them. You know the the Coptics are basically right in the middle there of the um, the, the Islamic world. They're existing as a minority group in Egypt, kind of minding their business, and they've been there forever. You know the Coptic Church is one of the oldest churches that exists. I think the church in Syria and the church in uh, and, uh, and the Coptic Church in Egypt are the oldest Christian churches. And again, it still exists. People still worship there, and they're getting persecuted like crazy. The reason I bring that up is because these, these, the Gospel of Thomas was written in Coptic. It comes from the you know, scraps that we found in, in Egypt, and, uh, and it's, it's a different kind of Christianity. So there, there are uh, similarities, and you'll see them when we start talking about them, between like modern Christianity and this Gnostic Christianity, uh, but there's a lot of differences, and uh, we'll talk about them more when we go through. But the Gnostics were way more mystical than than modern Christians. Way more mystical. You know, they believed in secret knowledge. That's what gnosis means. That's where they get the word Gnostic from. That they believe that there's secret knowledge that 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 you can uncover through a religious exercise that normal ordinary people will never will never learn. That there's a, that there's a secret mystery that can be that can be uh, achieved and 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 bring you some enlightenment or something that's that's kind of the goal of of uh, religion and and that has roots that go way back to the mystery religions of you know ancient ancient Greece and Rome and Egypt um, so it's got a long history but I point that out only because the Gnostic Christian um, quotes that we're going to talk about you probably never heard before um, unless you unless you saw the movie um, stigmata if you guys remember that, uh, in the movie Stigmata, the quotes that the uh, 
that the demon possessed uh, woman is uh, speaking and writing on the wall. If you remember that movie, um, that was from the Gospel of Thomas. So there's a little pop culture reference for you. Stigmata. All right. Enough said. I want to introduce this with a quote from the Upanishads. Um, here it goes. Whatever is here is there. And whatever is there is here likewise. Unquote. Why did I open with that? Well, that's weird. Uh, not a very hard-hitting uh, quote. The reason I bring this up is because basically what you're hearing here, whatever is here is there, whenever is there is here, that quote is something that means like, uh, you may have heard this before, as above, so below. As above, so below. Um, on earth as it is in heaven. You, you might, you might, that might make more sense to you. Um, this, this passage, as above, so below, you may have heard that before. I, I'm pretty sure it, it came up in a, one of the Da Vinci Code movies. But uh, the quote goes back to um, uh, basically the Middle Ages, the, you know, 800 to 1100 or something. There's all kinds of, uh, all kinds of you know, uh, kind of mystic philosophy at the time and alchemy and stuff like that. And there's a book called The Emerald Tablet of Hermes. This is another thing if you want to read, you can read on that sacredtext.com website I mentioned to you. Uh, but the Emerald Tablet of Hermes. Um, I don't want. To, I don't know if I have to give you a whole lot of back um, background on on this, but we're, you know, the, this is a, uh, uh, from the Middle Ages, and it's to the Tablet of Hermes. So you have to wonder. Okay, we're talking about Hermes, which is an ancient or you know classical Greek god, but you're fast forwarding to the Middle Ages, and you and you're using the word Hermes. Well, obviously, this is not a Greek uh, book. This is a. Um, uh, Medieval text, you know, from from Europe uh, that is philosophical and occult and mystical, and when when it says as above, so below, what what it means, what it's referencing, is that when the ancient people looked up at the heavens and they tried to understand what was going on with the stars and the constellations and the asteroids and the meteors and things that they were observing that they didn't understand, that they believed that. Um, the things that happen on the earth were influenced by the things that happened in the heavens or that somehow they were one and the same thing like what was happening on earth or in heaven was a reflection of, uh, of the other somehow, something like that. Um, and this is where kind of astrology was born and uh, along those same veins. Uh, the reason I bring that up is because this is, is going to be a theme. Uh, it has something to do, in my opinion, with this fractal idea. So the idea of behind the fractals, which is something that comes up in the mystic experience. So pe people who have had, you know, a, a profound religious experience, if it was visual, if they had, you know, a hallucination or a vision or whatever it is, um, even in a psychedelic experience, seeing those visuals, one of the things that's often seen are fractals. Sometimes they're spirals, so, but uh, usually it's just a pattern repeating. So you kind of see that with a spiral. But... um a pattern within a pattern. So again, you're going to see something, um, and no matter how far you zoom in or zoom out on that something, what you see is the same. Um, in in my experience, personally, the way that that image has, has come up is been in sometimes in spirals and moving patterns, but those patterns seem to be made up of smaller versions of itself. So you might see like a you know, like a snake, like a like a snake-like, you know, slithering sort of shape, and it's intertwined with it, with itself. And when you look deeper at it, you notice that within within the snake are more smaller snaking patterns that look just the same. And within them, 
more of the same. So it's like you could just dive in and there's no bottom to it. This is the fractal nature of, of uh, kind of that mystic intuition that I talked about. Um, I think when you look, when you think about that idea of a pattern within a pattern within a pattern without end, and then you look at that phrase, as above, so below, well, that's exactly what you're seeing. And in the Upanishads, it says, whatever is here is there. Whatever is there is here. And again, what I'm saying here is that there's something about the the deepest structure of reality or the religious intuition that that seems like a mirror of yourself, that you recognize it's familiar to you. It's like the more you understand about, you know, these deep, um, impactful experiences that are religious, that it somehow reminds you of some truth about yourself, that you can see it in your existence and in this philosophical idea of God. So it's, again, as above, so below. As with God, so with yourself. Something like that. And this will be a theme. Um, Okay, so let's get into it. I want to talk, um, I'm jumping around these Upanishads a little bit. They were written over a few hundred years, so there's different ones that were written. Um, I could try to pronounce the names of these, uh, but I... It won't do a good job. Maybe I'll try. I don't know. I won't do a good job. And uh, anybody who's, um, you know, has an Indian background or speaks Hindi or something, you're, you're just going to laugh, I'm sure. Uh, but I'll do my best. So the first section for me was a sampling of um, different quotes that talk about Brahman and Atman so that you can try to understand what they are. Um, when you read the Upanishads, what you will find is that it sort of beats around the fucking bush and it kind of does it on purpose. So when you're reading this stuff, it's like, I'm going to give you this little obscure fact in a little poetic way, and then I'm going to give you a little bit more a little later, and then I'm going to, give, I'm going to start changing that pattern a little bit and focusing in on, on some idea within it. And so you see this idea changing and morphing throughout the Upanishads, um, it, which makes it kind of confusing. You kind of have to follow it, but but if when you understand that it was written over hundreds of years, then you can easily understand. Okay, you know somebody early on said this, and people thought about it for a hundred years, and they developed that idea. Now now it becomes this, so it makes sense that way. Um, but I'm going to jump into it. So quote number one: There are two, the finite self of man, and the Atman or Brahman, the infinite self. Unquote. Okay, so right off the bat, they're saying, hey, there are two things. Okay, whoa. Only two things? Yes, sir, only two things. The finite self and the infinite self, the Atman and the Brahman. All right, got it. There are only two things, and those are what they are. All right, here we go. So there's an Upanishad, an early Upanishad. It's called the um, Ishavasya. See, see what I mean? Ishavasya. Uh, and it says this. It says the visible universe is infinite and has come out of the invisible Brahman, which is also infinite. So the, the visible universe is infinite and it has come out of the invisible Brahman, which is also infinite. Okay, so the universe comes out of God somehow. Uh, that, that's not, you know, that's not a, um, a, an unusual idea. Uh, but here again, we see that the universe is being described as infinite like God is being described as infinite. So here again, we have an as above, so below type thing. The Upanishads are saying, look around at being, look around at the universe around you, at material reality. And what you'll see is that it's infinite, that it came out of God, and and because of that, it's infinite like God is infinite. That's what it's telling you. Next quote. 
This is interesting. The same Atman dwells in every being. Okay, well now we're talking. Now we're getting now we're, now we're getting interesting here. So it's not just that everything has a soul and that that soul returns to God. It's saying everybody's soul, everybody's Atman is the same soul. The same Atman dwells in every being. Interesting. So th- there are lots of ways of thinking about this, but I think that is super interesting to me because it reminds me of my own mystic experience. It's like the the thing that was most important, the thing that when I had these mystic experiences that came across, like I describe it like dynamite, was that the oneness of, of reality, that everything is one. That's the first part. And that whatever it is that I am is the same as everything that exists. It's like, and I think the quote that, the quote that I mentioned before was something like, uh, what was it? Um, the consciousness that I am is in every atom that makes up the universe. That was my, that was my quote from, from, from this mystic intuition. And then I have this, this quote from the Upanishads that says, the, the same Atman dwells in every being. So this is, this is the idea. I read that, I see it in different language, exactly the same feeling and experience that I had. And, uh, you know, cutting to the chase, that is something that people don't generally go with. They don't generally agree with. People think of themselves as unique and different from one another. Trying to imagine yourself as the same as another person um, or trying to imagine yourself as the same as the, as the cosmos or something, it's like nonsense. You know, it doesn't accord with the way we experience the world, and so it seems like nonsense. Um, but I think it's super important. So in the Upanishads, they're saying that your soul and everyone else's soul, the thing that, it, that exists that allows them to exist and that allows them to be alive, um, whatever that thing is, that it's the same thing in you and in me and in everyone who's ever lived and maybe in, maybe in, in the entire cosmos. Mm, trippy? Mystical? I think so. All right, moving on. Um, next quote. Um, learning about the Atman. Okay. The Atman moves and it moves not. It is far and yet it is near. It is within all beings and it is also outside of them, unquote. Okay, wow. So this immediately reminds me, you know, the Atman moves and moves not. It is far, and yet it is near. So what, you're, what you are reading here is something that kind of strikes me as Confucian or something. It's like when you think of like a stereotypical, um, like sage quote from, from a, and the Asian you know, cultures, let's say, this is the kind of thing that you think about. It's like these contrary statements that are, that are contrary on purpose, intentional, but that it gives you something to ponder. It gives you something to think or meditate on. And if, if I just said the Atman moves, it doesn't really give you much to meditate on, you know. It's like a concrete idea. It is what it is. But when I say the Atman moves and it moves not, oh, so now we're on to something. Now, what does that mean? So immediately you're thinking to yourself, what does that mean? And then your mind starts churning out solutions. Like, it might mean this. It might mean that. This is what I mean. You have a statement like this that's on purpose, a contrary statement. It's written in a holy scripture, so you know it's supposed to have some deep meaning um, that, can, that can be teased out of it. But you read the sentence and it counteracts the statements that, it, that it's making. It, it means nothing. 
the Atman moves and it moves not means nothing. Um, but it also kind of means everything. You know, you, you go in and you fill in the back, you backfill the meaning in yourself. And I think that so much of, um, you know, Asian philosophy has that as a kind of tool that it uses to get people to think. The Atman moves and it moves not. It is far and yet it is near. So how, how can that be true? How can it move and not move? How can it be far and be near? Um, being far and near is something that reminds me of, again, another mystic experience that I had. I told you about this before, but it, it has to do with the, the shadow creature. It's like I, I had this several encounters with a um, an image of a, a human form, but it has no details. Um, looks very much like uh, what you see on the cover art for the podcast. It's It's a you know, a face and a body shape, but with no details. It's sort of a cloudy outline of a, of a, of a person that I have, uh, you know, seen and, and, and interacted with in these mystic, uh, mystic experiences. Um, and, and I, I told you before that that thing, you know, it came across to me as like this smoke that sort of hung in the air before it, before it formed into a, into a, like a shape of a man. And the thing that was so weird about it to me was noticing that the smoke was right in my face. It was so close to my eyes that it kind of made my eyes cross to look at it. But I could also see it in the distance. It was near and it was far. So again, that again, seemed to me to be the important, um, the important thing from that experience is trying to understand why is this thing so close to me that, you know, it's making my eyes cross to look at it, but also far away. And what does that mean? This is what I'm talking about. The Upanishads is asking you to do the same thing, to imagine Atman, the spirit, your spirit, whatever that means, as near and far. What does that mean? And then it goes on to say, it is within all beings, and it is also outside of them. So again, another contradiction. I have to now imagine something that's within everything, but also outside of everything. What could that be? All right, so I want to compare this statement to a uh, quote from, from the Taoist uh, tradition. When I talk about Taoism from China, there's a book, it's called the Tao Te Ching, and there's lots of other things written, and even ancient things written about Taoism. But the Tao Te Ching was written by the founder of that religion, Lao Tzu, and uh, it is basically the Bible of, of Taoism. So um, I'm going to stick with this one. And here it goes. It's, it's talking about Tao. Um, and maybe I have to explain Tao a little bit. So it's right up, right up the same alley as Brahman. But Tao, is, is, it means the way. It means the way. And it represents the... Really hard. It's really hard to put into words, but it represents the um, the force of uh, the, the structure that underlies reality, that flows through human beings and the cosmos, and is responsible for the cosmos. Something like that. And so, when the, when Taoism is talking about the Tao, this is what it says. Uh, this is why it is called the form of the formless, the image of nothingness. Meet it, and you do not see its face. Follow it, and you do not see its back. So you see what I mean here. When I'm reading the Upanishads and it says, it is within all beings and also outside of them. And I read the, in, the, in the Tao Te Ching, meet it and you do not see its face. Follow it and you do not see its back. This is the kind of contradiction that I was talking about. That you see it used as a tool. Um, you know there's important meaning there. You just got to figure out what it is. And the statement is designed to make you think. 
It's designed to make you fill in the gaps. Um, it's really designed to get you to focus your consciousness on, on, on the unknowable and, and you know give birth to all the different ideas that are right there on the tip of your mind waiting to be born, something like that. Um, and I, I, I'm remiss if I don't say that when we look at this quote that says the Atman is within all beings and, and outside of them, you, you, the picture you're getting here is that, you know, so, so I'm a spirit, let's say, in a body, and I'm walking around in this world, and the world is sort of also the same spirit that I am. So whatever it is that's within me is, is also without, you know, on the outside. The cosmos and myself are, are somehow being like uh, synonyms here. There's, they're being used as, as words for the same thing, and it harkens back to that as above, so below statement that we started with. All right, couple more, uh, couple more statements on the Atman. The Atman is self-sufficient. It is everywhere, without a body, knowing all, seeing all, and encompassing all. By pure mind alone can it be understood that there is no difference between Brahman and the manifested universe. Okay, interesting. So when it says the Atman is self-sufficient, it's everywhere, without a body, and knowing all... Um, seeing all and encompassing all, you know, that, you know, to me, that accords, you know, almost perfectly with the way that sort of like dogmatic um, people will talk about God and Christianity. They'll say that um, even philosophers, like religious philosophers that talk about God, trying to come up with an idea or a definition of God, they'll say that he was, that God is um, self-created. And so here you see that the Atman is self-sufficient, but, you, you know, that basically says it is everything it needs, okay? So it, it is everything it needs to exist, you might say. Um, so, so God is self-created. It says it's everywhere, knowing all, seeing all, and encompassing all. And to me, again, see it, what, it, what it rings to is God is self-created. Um, God is all-knowing. He's all-powerful. Um, he's, you know, these are the kind of words that, that philosophers and, and, you know, religious philosophers will use when they're trying to come up with a definition of God. And that's what I see here. But remember, the Upanishads are not saying Brahma is self-sufficient. You know, you, when I say Brahma, you can think of that word as God from a Judeo-Christian perspective. It's not saying Brahma is self-sufficient everywhere, knowing all, seeing all, encompassing all. It's saying Atman is self-sufficient, knowing all, encompassing all. Remember, Atman is your personal soul. It's it's God on earth. You know, it's you know, Brahma is God. Atman is God in being. You know, so it's interesting that it's basically saying here that the Atman, the word that you're supposed to understand, is the thing that you are. That that is everywhere, all knowing and encompassing all. And so you're getting again closer and closer to taking this word Atman and, and saying, you know, unequivocally, Atman is the same thing as Brahman. You are the same thing as God. It's not saying that yet, but it's getting closer and closer to saying that. All right, next quote. Um, this one comes from the, um, ooh, here we go again, uh, Mandukya Upanishad. And it says exactly what we've been, what we, what we've been leading up to. It says, this Atman is Brahman. And again, so when he says this Atman, he's talking about himself, the author, the person who's writing these words. This Atman, thing that I am, 
is God? Well, you can't get any more straightforward than that. So I think that is obviously what the religious experience, what the mystic experience will eventually tell you. If you, if you pursue it long enough, if you, tr- if you study it long enough, and you ponder on it long enough, eventually the truth that will come out of that is what this person just said. This Atman is Brahman. I am God. I know that's the most blasphemous thing that can be said. Um, and you know, if you've listened to any of these other podcasts, these solo podcasts, that I don't mean I myself personally am God. I mean, I do when I don't. Uh, what I mean is that being, that the material world, that that is, and everything in it, including you and I, that that is indistinguishable from God. It's a part of God. We don't, we don't, um, we don't see it that way, and there's and there's there's a reason for that, and I, and I can talk about why I think that reason might be, but I'm just I'm just guessing. Um, but there does seem to be a reason why we think ourselves to be separate from one another, separate from the cosmos, and separate from the thing that caused all of it to to, to you know be here. Uh, but that that thing that makes us think that is is illusion. It's wrong. And the mystic experience tells you that it reveals it to you, and that's that's the strange thing, is it's not it doesn't tell it to you. It's not like it's not like somebody's holding up a sign like a freaking Looney Tunes cartoon before I fall off the mountain, uh, telling me that I'm God. That's not what's happening. It's it's something that it's like the 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 veils pulled away from your eyes, and you notice what you always knew. It's like an ah okay, I I remember that now. I remember that I'm God. It's like a um. It's a realization like that. It's not like new information. That's how it comes across in the mystic experience. And that's what this guy is saying. This Atman is Brahman. And again, the quote that I mentioned earlier from my own mystic experience that I wrote down was, the consciousness that I am is in every atom that makes up the cosmos. And I think that's true. All right, so there's another Upanishad. It's called the Kena Upanishad. Finally, one that I think I can pronounce correctly, K-E-N-A. This is what it says. What mind cannot comprehend, but what comprehends the mind, know that alone as Brahman and not what people worship as an object. Ooh, here's a good one. What mind cannot comprehend, but what comprehends the mind. What does that mean? So that's very much along the lines of what we were talking about before. One of these sentences that's crafted very intentionally to make you think, to make you fill in the contradiction with some meaning. Um, and again, it says, what the mind cannot comprehend, but what comprehends the mind. What could that be? Now, the passage tells you that's God. Um, and you shouldn't be worshiping any objects or anything else. Anything that doesn't fit this definition, the thing uh, the thing that the mind can't comprehend, but which comprehends the mind. What, what in the world does that mean? Okay, so I think the, what the mind can't comprehend is the unknowable. It's the thing that we cannot have direct experience of, and we can't have, we can't have knowledge of for that same reason. It's the thing that I call the unknown part of ourselves, or what Carl Jung would call the unconscious. Um, that's the same thing that that I think of as God in the true in the true sense, uh, or maybe maybe more true to say that thinking about the material world and this unconscious thing, this un, unknowable part of ourselves, um, the thing I also call non-being, and the Dao, the the Taoists call non-being as well. 
that when you take those things together, the universe and the the unknowable you know matrix of being, when you take those things together, that's the that's the right way of understanding God. Um, and while we don't while we don't have immediate access to that part of us, that that's why I'm calling it unknowable, that unconscious part of us. While we don't have immediate access to it, it is part of us, and that's what I mean here. It's one thing. Um, so that that's what the mind can't comprehend. It's the unknowable thing. Why is it why is it something that can't be comprehended or can't be known? Well, the reason is I explained in a prior podcast really is that um, it's all things that are all things together. It's the undifferentiated thing. So you can imagine this uh, you know this seed um, that can grow into anything. The stem cell you might you might call it. Um, and because it's everything all together, you know, it's, I, I, I kind of went, went this way before describing it, that it's not just good and evil, it's good and evil together. What is that? Well, it's nothing. Can't, can't comprehend that. Can't make sense of that. You know, it's life and death together. What is that? Well, it's kind of nothing. Um, it's everything all together. And when you do that, when you merge all the colors together, let's say, you're left with black. You're left with no color. And this is the kind of thing that, that, that the Upanishads is getting at. It's whatever it is that everything can come from, that what everything can be born from or, or emerge from, the matrix of being, whatever that is, that's completely unknowable to us. It's not something that we can comprehend because it's everything all at once. But it also comprehends the mind. So, it, so you're basically saying this idea of everything rolled up into one, this potential for everything to be, that this is God. So we can't comprehend that. We can't comprehend God in that way. But we come from that thing. We are that thing. So, so it comprehends the mind. It comprehends, comprehends us just fine. You know, we're just one small you know, uh, part of the infinity that it is. We make up God or some part of it. So this is what it's getting at here. It's, it's what the mind cannot comprehend, but what comprehends the mind. And here we're toying with this idea of consciousness for the first time. You know, what the mind can't comprehend, what comprehends the mind. Well, the mind and comprehension are words that have to do with consciousness. So we're starting to get this idea getting, getting brought up. And then it says here, know that alone as Brahman and not what people worship as an object. So it's sort of it's sort of um, pointing you in the right direction here, as far as what you should be focusing on when you're trying to understand what God is. It's not these things that people want you to think it is. It's not an object. Uh, it's something that cannot be comprehended. So you have to meditate on and focus on searching for the thing that cannot be comprehended. What? What? This is the very tr- you know traditionally Asian type of a of a philosophical tool, and I'll compare it for you uh, again with the Tao Te Ching uh, from, from China it says this it says Tao looked at cannot be seen listened to cannot be heard so Tao looked at it cannot be seen listened to it cannot be heard this is very similar to what the mind comprehends but what, but what comprehends the mind um, you know the Tao can be looked at but not seen listened to but not heard it's, it's these intentional contradictory statements, internally inconsistent contradictory statements that aren't just nothing. The same way that I said, you know, good and evil together. It, it seems like nothing, but it's not just nothing. It's good and evil together. So what is that? And that's the idea here. I'm trying to piece out what it is that could be 
um, again, something that's not comprehensible, but, but that compre- but comprehends, you know, my mind. Um, so, you know, I just want to make a, make a contrast there so you can see that this is not something that's unique to Hinduism, but we do see that tactic used, you know, for whatever reason, largely in Asian, Asian religion and philosophy. But I think it's effective. You know, there's definitely something there. There's meaning there. You just got to figure out, figure out what that is or maybe invent the meaning. Maybe that has something to do with it. All right, so we're going to move to a different Upanishad. It's called the Katha Upanishad. And it says this, The Atman is hidden in experience and residing in the body. So we're learning more about the Atman. It's hidden in experience and residing in the body. Well, what does that mean? I mean, we get the idea that if Atman is soul, that it's residing in the body. You know, we kind of understand that. You know, we've got this mind-body problem that we, you know, that we uh, try to make sense of. We're both a body and a mind. That's how we feel ourselves to be. We kind of imagine that we're consciousness that's sort of in the driver's seat, kind of right behind our eyes, let's say. It's driving this, you know, body vehicle around the around the around the world, uh, living our lives. That's kind of how that's kind of how we visualize our soul and our body. So that part's not, you know, it's not not out there. But it says that the Atman is hidden in experience. What does that mean? The soul is hidden in experience. Well, that's that's really interesting. I I think I think what it means or what it might mean is that experience is, well, that's the thing that consciousness does, you know, the thing that you do, you know, you, you're a conscious creature, I'm a conscious creature, and what we're doing all of the time is experiencing. You know, if I'm awake, or even if I'm dreaming, I am constantly experiencing. That's what consciousness does. And I think this is what it's pointing to when it says the Atman, if you want to know what you are, you know, your Atman, if you want to know what that is, that's something that is, it can be found in experience. The fact that, the fact that we experience at all, um, that has to do with, uh, with our consciousness. Um, and that's the, that's the way that we experience the cosmos, the mater- material world. It's the way we experience one another. We experience everything um, as experience. You know, it's not, it's, it, there's nothing really, um, permanent about an object about matter or, or or you know what i mean it's it's it for us it's an experience everything is an experience this conversation right now these words that are flowing into your ears right now is an experience you're having so i think that this is what it's getting at here is that that when you realize that that all you are is an experience well what's having that experience so that's the thing that's hidden in your experience it's the thing that's having the experience. What is that? That is what the Upanishads are saying is Atman. That is what you are. That's consciousness. So now we're getting now we're getting more to the point. We're getting closer and closer to the, the way I described the mystic experience. Uh, all right, here's another quote from the same Upanishad. The Atman is smaller than the atom and is greater than the cosmos. It is ever-present in the heart of every creature. The Atman is smaller than an atom and greater than the cosmos. So here we have another one of those contradictory, self-contradictory statements, uh, but the meaning there is not erased by the contradiction. Whatever the Atman is, it's smaller than the atom. It's, sm- it's smaller than the most basic building blocks of, of reality. It's, it goes down deeper to the kind of 
uh, foundation of, of the material world, it goes down deeper even than the atom is what it's saying. And it's also greater even than the cosmos. So it's something that is there at the very bottom of the material world that everything is made from. But it's also there at the very highest level, looking out at the, at the cosmos as a whole. So you can just imagine yourself as God, you know, standing somehow outside of the cosmos. And you're looking down at the infinite space and time plane. You're looking at all of the stars and galaxies and the infinite expanse of, of, of that. that. That's the Atman too. It's, it, that's the Atman too. It's the whole kit and caboodle from the, from the very smallest to the very largest with nothing left out. So again... We're, we're, we're getting closer and closer to talking about Atman as consciousness, as the soul. Um, we've, already, we've already kind of equated Atman with Brahman. So we are, we, you know, at this point, we're already talking about ourselves as God in this weird way. Uh, but now we're kind of fine-tuning that and talking about that more, more and more like consciousness. Um, and that's what, that's what I think is happening, again, over time as the Upanishads are being written and sort of... Um, uh, you know, as, as people are thinking more deeply about these and building on the ideas that this is the direction that we're moving. All right. All right, a couple quotes here that I think are right up that same alley. Um, that by which we know form, taste, smell, sound, touch, and sexual pleasure is this very Atman. So now, so now the quote is describing Atman as the thing through which we know all of our senses. Not just the taste, smell, sound, touch, and sex, but, we, but also how we know form. Form. So everything in the world has a form. You know, there's, you, can, you can imagine a formless thing. You can imagine, well, you, you can't really imagine it, but you sort of can. Um, so the idea of that, that there might have been nothing or formlessness and then suddenly from that you, you you know there 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 comes some form that we can now see objects and we can see you know depth and space and all the things that have form that even that comes from our atman comes from our soul the same soul that we that we said is equivalent to god to brahman well so here again we're talking about senses and we're talking about perceptions and it says that they come from atman so now we're getting really, really close to talking about Atman as consciousness. I mean, we're getting even closer now. So it's not just, you know, the thing that's behind, it's behind my senses. It's, uh, it's not just, you know, the thing from that, that all of material reality comes from. Um, all of this stuff is getting equated and rolled up into this idea of Brahman or Atman. And that is, again, to a T, what the mystic experience tries to tell you. And we have more of the same. Uh, it goes like this. It is the all-pervading Atman through which they perceive all objects in dream as well as in waking. Okay. So now, so now, we're, now the people that wrote the Upanishads are starting to throw in not just our, our consciousness of the material world, but our consciousness of our internal world, of our dreams. And I didn't write this quote down, but there was some other quote in the Upanishads that was like this that said something about like the idea that you, when you dream, that there are things there, that there are objects in space and things that exist in your dreams that aren't real. And the quote went on, basically went on to say that um, 
you know, just like the world, just like God created the things that are in the world in your waking reality, it also creates things in your in your psyche, you know, in your inner reality. So it's no surprise that there are things in your dreams because the thing that you are is the thing that created that creates things. You know, God created the heavens and the earth. God created the cosmos, and all those things that exist in your dream world, those were created by God too. And that God is you. That's what this is saying. Um. All right, here we go. So another one. Uh, he existed before the creation of the universe, and he exists in the hearts of all beings. Now, this doesn't say much that I haven't already said, but the reason I brought this up is because it, there's a passage from the Bible from Luke that, um, that I want to talk about in this context. So, so here, basically, he just says that God existed before the creation of the universe, or Atman, the thing that you are. Um, and then it says, and he exists in the hearts of all beings. So God exists in all beings. And here's what Luke says. Luke, uh, Luke says this, and when he was demanded of the Pharisees, when the kingdom of God should come, and this is how Jesus answered. He answered them saying, the kingdom of God cometh not with observation. Neither shall they say, lo here or lo there. For behold, the kingdom of God is within you kingdom of God is within you. Okay. It, you know, it's not clear what that means. The kingdom of God is within you. And, and if you talk to Christians, this is something you could argue about forever. There's not, there's not one opinion on this. But what, what strikes me as interesting is the Upanishad saying that God exists in the hearts of all beings. And Jesus says the kingdom of God is within you. And I have to, and I have to, I feel like those statements are the same statements, you know, different words, different cultures, but Atman exists in the hearts of all beings and the kingdom of God is within you, to me, are saying the same thing. All right, I want to talk about, uh, I want to talk about the Gnostics a little bit because we start talking about the kingdom of God being within you. Nobody explains that better than the Gnostics. And the Gospel of Thomas says this. It says, Jesus said, if those who, who lead you say that the kingdom of God is in the sky, then the birds of the sky will precede you. If they say to you it is in the sea, then the fish will precede you. Rather, the kingdom is inside of you and is outside of you. When you come to know yourself, then you will become known, and you will realize it is you who are the sons of the living Father. But if you will not know yourself, you dwell in poverty, and it is you who are that poverty." Unquote. Wow. So there's lots of things that stand out to me about this quote. I mean, you obviously see it's a, it's a bit of a different spin on this, the kingdom of God is within you business in the Gospel of Thomas from what we saw in Luke. Um, you know, basically in Luke, Jesus is, you know, he's getting, he's in front of the Pharisees. He's in front of the, the you know, the important religious people and they're, they're doing their best to, to undermine him eventually they're going to have him killed you know that's kind of seems like what what they're aiming at here and they're trying to pin him down um you know on something that they can get him in trouble for and his response to that is to say that the kingdom of god is within you in uh in in the gospel of thomas you know you've got this you've got this different type of thing going on um, not only does he say the kingdom is inside of you he also says and it is outside of you so we didn't get that from Luke. So here, you know, this this 
is very similar to an earlier passage that we read from the Upanishads about describing Brahman or Atman as being both inside of you and outside of you. So from the Gnostic Christian perspective, you know, that's verbatim what, what they're saying. They completely agree. A Christian completely agreeing with a with a Hindu about the nature of man and God. Completely, word for word. The kingdom of God is inside of you and is outside of you. Okay. Um, and it says here, when you come to know yourself, then you will become known and you will realize that you are the sons of the living Father. So in this Gnostic passage, um, it, it's saying that when you come to know yourself, and, and I can't, I have to stop there for a second and just say, um, n- know yourself is a very ancient religious and philosophical um, quote. You know, um, it, it was actually written on the door of the Temple of Apollo in, in Greece, know yourself. Um, and I always wondered about that. Because I thought that was interesting. What does that mean, know yourself? And what, what the Gnostic Christians and in the, in the, in the ancient Hindus both said is that if you meditate on what it is that you are, if you really know what you are, then what happens? Well, the Gospel of Thomas says you will realize that it is you who are the sons of the living Father. So I don't exactly know what that means apart from the idea that, that a son of God just the way that you know Jesus was described in in the in the in the, in the Gospels, um, that what what that seems to imply is that your progeny, that you are from God, that you're you're a chip off the old block, you're a you're a part of God living in uh with within you know the cosmos and and the understanding, the proper understanding when you know yourself, when you actually come to know yourself, you will know that you are God existing within God, you are the sons of the living Father. Something like that. It also says that if you don't know yourself, that you'll dwell in poverty, and that that poverty is you. So it's sort of it's sort of telling you here that you're, you know, you're living in hell or living in heaven. Let's say has something to do with your um, with your ability to come to this conclusion. If you, if you can know yourself, then you can then you can exist in in heaven. If not, you're gonna you're gonna dwell in poverty. You know, it's gonna be bad for you. All right, so the next Upanishad, and we're, we're going to wrap up this section soon because, you know, again, it's not easy to describe Atman and Brahman, so we have to kind of do it this way. But once we get through this description and we have a pretty good idea of kind of what they think about it and how it aligns with the mystic experience, then I'm going to talk about, I'm going to talk about something a little different, and, and it, it'll be interesting. Just wait, wait and see here. I'll, I don't want to spoil it. All right, so then we have another, another Upanishad here. It's called the Prashna Upanishad. And it says this, earth, water, fire, air, and ether. What can be seen, heard, smelled, touched, tasted, and what can be spoken, the mind and the thoughts, what can be comprehended, all these rest in Atman. Okay, so let's, so let's take this apart. Um, earth, water, fire, air, and ether, these are the... Um, elements. So in, in, in ancient ways of thinking, you know, this goes back to the ancient Greeks as well. They tried to imagine uh, what, what, the, what the cosmos was made from. And uh, the p- kind of primal elements is what they came up with. Earth, water, fire, air. And ether is also added, which is, um, which is interesting, because ether sometimes means like um, the space 
the space that's necessary for things to travel in, you know, whether it's like, you know, what the air travels in, what sound travels in, what, you know, what we travel in. Uh, but it also, it also means something like the, um, like the, uh, essence of life like this. There's some other element that's not material. It's called ether. And that's what ether means. You know, it's something ethereal. It's, it's non-material so that, that the cosmos might be made from the basic, you know, material constituents, earth, water, fire, and air, but also this non-material thing called ether. So this is what it's starting with. It says all of these things. And then it says everything that can be seen, heard, smelled, touched, or tasted. So it's talking about, um, you know, all of the objects of experience. And then it says what can be spoken. So all ideas, um, the mind and thoughts, and everything that can be comprehended, all of these rest in Atman. Okay, so that's, again, very, very much like consciousness, but we're adding into that idea the material world and everything that makes it up. So now, now consciousness not, is not only, or Atman is not only um, the, uh, you know, the, the world of experience, but it's also the material world. It's those things together. And the Tao Te Ching, I'll, I'll give you a passage from it to contrast. It says this, the thing that is called Tao is elusive, evasive, yet latent in it are forms, elusive, evasive, yet latent in it are objects, dark and dim, yet latent in it is the life force. So the Tao, you know, the Tao, you, you, again, they're, they're talking about that in the same way that the uh, Hindus are talking about this idea of Brahman or Atman or, or, or you know, kind of the combination of Brahman and Atman. Um, and they're saying that it's elusive, evasive, over and over again. It's hard to define. It's hard to understand. It's this unknowable thing. And yet, within it are the forms. Within it are the objects. Within it is the life force. Um, so it's very, much, uh, it's very much along the same lines that everything is born from it. Everything can, be, uh, can emerge from it, the Tao. And this is exactly the way the Hindus speak of uh, Atman or Brahman. All right, so the next Upanishad is the uh, Mandaka Upanishad. And it's, it has an interesting, interesting phrase here. It says this, As a spider emits and withdraws a web, as plants grow from the soil, and as hair grows over the human body, so does the universe spring out from the eternal Brahman. So, so, now, it's, so now it's describing to you how the material world um, exists and how it relates to God, to Brahman. It's saying that, that the material world, that being, it sprouts here and there from Brahman like the hair on your body. You know, it emerges from, the, from a, a spider like its web. It emerges from the soil like plants from seeds. It's sprouting up and bursting forth all over the place. That this is the relationship between God and the material world. That we're like, we're like, you know, Every, every conscious creature is like a hair bursting forth out of the body of God, something like that. So I thought that was interesting and very, very similar to the psychedelic experience. I mean, you could hear, you could hear those words coming right out of the mouth of a hippie, for sure. All right, here's another interesting one, and we're getting close here. We're going to start talking, uh, changing topics. In fact, this will be the last one we talk about for uh, defining Brahman and Atman, trying to understand that. Um, this is also the most 
um, difficult Upanishad to pronounce, but I'm going to give it a go just for you guys uh, so you can get a chuckle maybe. All right, here we go. Um, Bragdaranyakaka. Something, no, that's wrong. B-R-I-H-A-D-A-R-A-N-Y-A-K-A. You get the idea. Way too many uh, letters in that one. Okay, so in this Upanishad, talking about uh, the Atman, it says, the Atman roams between the waking and the sleeping worlds. That's it. Wow. The Atman roams between the waking and the sleeping worlds. So we already had that passage earlier where it talked about uh, talked about Atman being you know, existing in, in the waking world and the sleeping world. So we, we had this idea of understanding it like consciousness or, or experience, um, which again is right, is right up my alley for sure. But I, this is what I find interesting, that here we have this um, very obvious connection to dreams and our, our inner world, you know, our, our sleeping world. And it reminds me of not only not only an experience I had, a mystic experience I had, but it reminds me of it reminds me of some stuff that Carl Jung has said. So um, uh, let's see here. Let me finish this quote here. Uh, the quote goes on. It says, "The Atman roams between the waking and the sleeping worlds, just as a large fish swims from the eastern to the western bank. Even so, the Atman moves alternatively to both states." Dream and waking. All right, so I had a, uh, I told you this story once already, but I had this mystic experience one time, and it was a, um, it was an, it was a vision of, um, I was trying to imagine like the, the foundation of being, like the matrix of being, what everything comes from. And, and in my mind, it was just this black nothingness. And what I saw in it was like a, all of a sudden, it was like a, a fish or a dolphin jumping out of the water as out of the darkness and back into it. And it was like this semicircle shape of this fish or dolphin jumping out of the water and diving back into it. And then I, I was floating above it and I could see that, that the dolphin was, was, it was like, it was not just a semicircle. It was a full circle. It was part of the circle was above the water and part of the circle was below the water as these dolphins were jumping, uh, jumping in and out. I also had an experience, uh, if you remember me telling this story, uh, of a vision of me standing in front of this creek. And on the other side of the creek was that shadowy figure that I was telling you about, that, that featureless, shadowy character. And I reach over and grab the character, and it grabs me. And as soon as we touch each other, it's like we're spinning in a circle. I, I'm suddenly on, on its side of the bank, and it's on my side, and back and forth and back and forth. So in both of these experiences, you have these circles... And you have this, uh, um, you know, you have this interaction between um, kind of one side of the circle and the other. Whether we're whether we're talking about the dolphin or whether we're talking about me and that shadow creature, and I understood those experiences to mean, again, Carl, Carl Jung uh, mentions that the that the symbol of water in dreams and in myths um, almost always uh, is a analogy to the to the unconscious. It's that deep, dark, unknowable place where anything can emerge from. Uh, that 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 both of these images, the dolphin existing partly in in above the water and partly below the water, is an is an idea. It's that that this conscious creature, the thing that I am, exists in consciousness above the water, and in unconsciousness below the water. And when I was holding hands with that shadow creature, I understood that I was conscious and it was unconscious. And we were the same thing. And so when I reached out to him, 
and it and he reached out to me it was like a, it was like doing it in a mirror of course i reach out of course it reaches back because it's just me and when i grab when i grab the hands of this shadow creature of this unconscious part of myself suddenly we're spinning in the circle back and forth between unconsciousness and consciousness and i understood that that my reality uh, again, this is just part of that mystic intuition, that my reality is something different than what I imagine it is. It's something that partakes of both consciousness and unconsciousness at the same time, and that I'm only aware of the conscious part, but that there is another half of me. There's a, there's a missing piece of, of the thing that I am that exists in this unconscious way. And when I look at the Upanishads, and it says, the Atman, the soul, it roams between the waking and the sleeping. And again, like a large fish, so we're using the same symbolism of water and fish that I had from my mystic experience, that it moves from one bank to the other, the waking and the, and the, and the dreaming. And that, that's what your consciousness does. It exists in both places. Uh, we open up our eyes and exist in being in the material world without ever realizing that there's this other side of our life that exists in the unconscious Something like that, and that's something that Carl Jung and, and uh, you know um, that kind of depth psychologists will will agree with. It just so happens that the Upanishads and the language in it just match up so well with my own mystic experience. All right, so what, what's the point of all this? So the point of all this, like any religion, is um, a supernatural reward, you might say. So we talk about that, like if you're going to practice any religion. As a Christian, let's say uh, your goal might be to, uh, you know, to go to heaven. Uh, as a Buddhist, your goal might be to achieve nirvana, that kind of thing, or enlightenment. If you're if you're an atheist, something like that. So any any study like this has has some goal like that in mind. And um, the Upanishads in this uh, Vedanta we've been talking about is no different. The language they use is really, really similar to Christianity. And I think that's really interesting. You know, for lots of reasons. I mean, there's there's a lot of distance in space and time between Hinduism and Christianity. Even, even between Hinduism and Judaism, where Christianity kind of started. So the fact that there's this, this that there's this, um, these ideas and words that line up between the two, I find very interesting. So I'm just going to get into it. Um, this is basically what I've what I've called the path to immortality. Um, all right, so I'll start with a quote here. It says, "The Atman cannot be attained by the study of scriptures, nor by intelligence, nor by much hearing. It is attained by him to whom it chooses to reveal its own true form." So that's interesting. It's telling you that. The Atman cannot be attained by studying scriptures. It cannot be attained just because you're smart and you're thinking a lot about it. And it cannot be attained by getting preached to by somebody even who, who knows what, what Atman is. That it can only be attained if it, if it chooses to reveal itself to, to an individual. Now that last part is a little bit hippy-dippy. Um, I don't know exactly what I think about that, but truth be told... If, if you asked me, you know, whether I had the mystic experiences that I had on purpose, uh, meaning that, like, I knew what I was going to get and I, and I acted that way so that I could get that experience out of it, the answer is no. Um, 
I had no idea when, when I had those experiences what I was getting into um, or what what to expect. So when it says that it it can't really it can't be attained through any you know um, effort of your will, but it has to just has to just decide to to kind of reveal itself to you. That's very hippie, but it's also not that you know wrong. It's not it's not that different from what I the way I experienced it. So take it for what for what that's worth. But I do think it's interesting here that it's saying um, that you can't you can't study scriptures um, uh, or or talk to somebody who who's had the experience and understand what Atman is, who what you are, you know, what your relationship is to God. You, you can't. That it's an experience that you have to have, and I 100% agree with that. That's that mystic experience that we've been talking about. And again, I don't want to speak out of school. The truth is, I studied religion my entire life. I've loved it, and I've been reading, reading, and thinking about this since I was a kid. Um, and I never got anywhere close to understanding any of this stuff until I had a mystic experience. And then it reminds me of what Thomas Aquinas said. If anybody doesn't know Thomas Aquinas, he's one of the like the founding fathers of the Catholic Church, and uh, you know he was a philosopher, and he wrote a, a bunch of things that were that are to this day considered. You know some of the best philosophy, especially religious philosophy, ever done. Um, very, very smart guy, and he had a mystic experience. Um, he didn't describe it, but what he did say is that everything he ever wrote is garbage, and, and I'm paraphrasing. But he basically said all of the all of the lofty uh, ideas and the you know the powerful ideas that he put forth in his philosophy were as nothing when he had the mystic experience. He was like, oh, I, you know, I couldn't have been more wrong. I couldn't have been more like. Um, falling short of the truth of of, of God and this mystic intuition. Um, so I, anyway, I, I lost my train of thought there for a bit. But in any case, let's circle it back here to the next quote, which which is this. And I'm going to give this to you not because it pertains to the story or the narrative, but because it links to Christianity, and I'm going to do a lot of that from this point on. But it says this, You cannot hope to achieve immortality through wealth. Okay, so we know from the prior passage we can't get um, we can't understand Atman through studying of the scriptures or th- by being intelligent or by hearing it preached to us. Here it, it words it a little differently. It says you can't hope to achieve immortality through wealth. So okay, so maybe wealth isn't the means to, to this truth either. But but I want to point out that we be, we started talking about attaining uh, or you know understanding Atman, but now we're talking about achieving immortality. But we're talking in the same way, and so there's this there's this confluence here where where to understand yourself, to un, to know what Atman is, what you are, that that is somehow the same thing as achieving immortality. Okay, what does that mean? I think this is absolutely the crux of the mystic intuition. This is the most important thing, um, and we'll get we'll kind of get to this in the end here. But I don't want to I don't want to go too too fast through it. I just want to point out here that the idea of understanding Atman and now and now is being talked about as the same thing as achieving immortality. So again, the quote is that you can't hope to achieve immortality through wealth. And and the Bible and and, and Mark the tenth the tenth chapter of Mark it says it's easier for a camel to pass through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven. So this, again, is a little bit of a confluence. I wanted to point that out. I think these statements are basically saying the same thing. You can't achieve immortality through wealth. 
um, you know, that, that, that the material means here is not, is not going to get you, um, spiritual enlightenment. It's not going to get you, it's not going to get you anything. According to the Bible, it might even make it, it might even make it more difficult or even impossible to have that, um, knowledge of yourself or to have that, you know, enlightenment that money may, maybe gets in the way somehow. Um, and, you know, there's all sorts of things we could say about that, you know, focusing on materialism and, and all that stuff. Um, but I, I don't want to do that. I want to, I want to get on to bigger and better things and more, more important points. I just wanted to point out that there is a, uh, there is sort of a, um, uh, a consistent theme here through, through, um, the Upanishads and, uh, and the Bible in, in particular, the, uh, you know, the, the, the Jesus and, and his, and his words. All right. So here we go. It says, the next quote says, a rare and discriminating man desirous of immortality turns his eyes inward to see the indwelling Atman. Okay, so here it's saying that not many people do this, you know, the rare and discriminating man, but somebody who desires immortality, whatever that means, somebody who doesn't want to die, that person turns his eyes inward and he sees there the indwelling Atman. He realizes that within yourself is, is God. So the person who desires immortality will will look into himself to find there the immortal thing, God, something like that. All right, so the next Upanishad here says, uh, one should meditate upon the elements which the universe is composed. Then one should meditate upon oneself. So now it's telling you, you know, you can't, you can't read the scriptures, you can't be smart, you can't listen to the preacher and, 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 and come to the truth. We already know that. We already said that. So what, what can we do? Well, this is what he's saying. You should meditate upon the elements that make up the universe, and then you should med- meditate upon yourself. And that's it. That's all it says. You should meditate upon the elements which make up the universe, and then you should meditate on yourself. So what happens if you do that? If you sit there and you think about... Um, you know, what makes up the cosmos? What makes up material reality? If you think about that, and you think and you think and you think, there's all sorts of ideas that are going to pop up in your head. Um, and maybe you'll find some of those ideas you like better than others. You'll start to build up a little bit of a structure for your belief surrounding that. Um, you know, and maybe maybe for me, uh, what makes up the material universe is, is matter and energy, of course, but it's also consciousness to me. So I've got these three things that I can imagine and play around with. Once I've done that, then it says you should meditate on yourself. Okay, so I start doing that and I, I think about matter and energy and consciousness. Exactly the same as I do when I think about the universe. So this is the way I kind of think that if you do what this suggests and you meditate upon what makes up the universe and then you meditate upon yourself, that what you will realize is that what makes up yourself and what makes up the universe are exactly the same thing. And then it's easier for you to take that next step to understand yourself as to as the same thing as as the universe uh you know and that that if if the thing that you are that your atman is supposed to be understood as brahman as god then then what you are what god is is yourself and the rest of the of, of material reality next quote says consider your mother as god consider your father as god consider your teacher and your guest as god Okay, what does that what does that mean? Treat treat people in your life, you know, really well. You know, worship them, give them things. You know, what does that mean? 
How do you treat a God? Um, maybe it's not about that. And maybe it's not about how you treat people in your life, although, you know, maybe that's part of it. Maybe it's, maybe it's just designed to get you to think a little bit more flexibly. Think about, think about conscious creatures in your life as the same as God. And when you do that, it'll become easier for you to think of yourself that way. It'll be easier for you to think about your mother and your father and your teacher and your guest as something that's the same, that they're, that they're all God, and so are you, and so is the cosmos, something like that. All right, so the next Upanishad here, which, boy, I don't know if I can pronounce this, uh, Chandogya, Chandogya. Uh, it says this, The knower of Brahman sees everywhere the supreme light of the Ancient One, who is the seed of the universe. One should meditate on mind as Brahman. Okay. Well, I mean, I, so here it says that the knower of Brahman sees everywhere the supreme light of the Ancient One. Um, and what that reminds me of is, first of all, when you say the knower of Brahman, you know, I, I can't help but, but notice that the word knower denotes consciousness, that a consciousness is what knows things. So when it says the knower of Brahman, it sort of means the consciousness of God. That's what it means. Uh, sees everywhere the supreme light of the ancient one. And one is capitalized here. So one, when, whenever you see... Um, uh, whenever you see a word that's not a proper name that's capitalized, it's supposed to indicate a proper name. So when I say the ancient one, I'm talking here, when I say one, I'm talking about something specific. In this context, that's some one specific, that's God, Brahman. So the knower of Brahman, or the consciousness of God, sees everywhere the supreme light of the ancient one, the supreme light of, of God. So the idea here is that if, if you know yourself to be God, if you know Atman to be Brahman, and you look around the world, that what you will see is God in everything. God is everything. The objects in your, in your, um, in your experience, the people, um, the air you're breathing, all of it. And then it says, who is the seed of the universe? So from the one, from God, all of the universe is born. And then, it, and then it asks you, it says, one should meditate on mind as Brahman. Okay, so in ancient Hinduism, they didn't have the word consciousness. So here you're seeing the word mind, and you're saying meditate on mind. Think about your consciousness as God. Meditate on that and see where it takes you. That's what it's telling you to do. All right, the um, next Upanishad is the uh, Ishavasya, and it says this. Um, he is a wise man who sees all beings in his own self and his self in all beings, thus realizing the unity of existence. Okay, so I, I read this, you know, obviously this goes, you know, very much in line with the one that we just read, but it also reminds me of, uh, of Jesus in a different way. It reminds me of the, um, you know, love your neighbor as yourself and turn the other cheek business. You know, so you've got, uh, you've got this passage here saying that a wise man sees all beings in his self and his self in all beings. Um, this is what I imagine, um, you know, comparing to the, the Christian story. Um, 
you know, like like you might even imagine that uh, when Jesus was washing the feet of his apostles, which he did, um, that the reason that that's such a powerful like uh, visual is that Jesus is supposed to be God on earth, He's supposed to be the creator of of the universe, and he's sitting there doing this thing that that slaves do. He's he's doing a lowly thing. He's washing the dirt off of the feet of his apostles of his followers so you've got you've got the master of the universe washing the the dirt and grime off of the off of the feet of these people that are following him he's putting himself um he's putting himself uh at the level um at the lowest level he can but certainly at the level of of his disciples um and so again, seeing God in His disciples, and seeing you know what I mean that 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 this is what we're seeing that the God Man that Jesus saw His disciples as Himself, you know He put Himself on the same plane as as them, um, and and thus realizing the unity of existence. This is how the how the quote finishes. So seeing all beings in yourself, and yourself in all beings, and this goes along with this quote. And I referenced this before, but this is going to be the full passage, and it, and it reads like this. He who understands vidya and avidya both together conquers death. Okay, I'm going to stop there. I mentioned before, but for those people who don't remember, the word vidya means the changeless reality. It's like, it's like Brahma. It's like God. And avidya represents um, the world, the material cosmos, the, the you know, reality. So here what he's saying is the person who understands the changeless reality and the universe both together conquers death. The person who knows that God and being are the same conquers death. And then it goes on to say, through the knowledge of the world and attains immortality through the knowledge of Brahman. Okay, so we've been talking a lot about immortality here, and this goes back to where I started this segment, that in religious practice, that there's a goal in mind. You know, like, I want to, I want to, conquer sin so that I can go to heaven like that's what a Christian might say or you know I want to um, become enlightened so that I can exist in nirvana as a Buddhist might say that there is a goal to the religious exercise and Hinduism just talks about this as immortality as as uh, you know as conquering death and that's what this that's what this is said that when you understand vidya and and avidya together then you will conquer death and you will attain immortality all right, so I have, to, I have to compare this to Jesus again. And this is from Timothy. It says this, And which now has been manifest through the appearing of our Savior Jesus Christ, who abolished death and brought life and immortality to light through the gospel. And the book of Revelations, chapter 21, which says this, He will wipe away every tear and from their eyes, and death shall be no more. And here's one from the... Um, the uh, Dhammapada, which is the uh, Buddhist text, it says, My disciple shall conquer this world and death with its attendant gods. It is he who shall sort the verses of the well-preached law as a cleaver uh, garland maker uh, sorts flowers. Clever garland maker sorts flowers. Unquote. So here you've got, um, you've got the Upanishads talking about, you know, uh, again, once you understand God and, and, and the universe to be one thing, that you will conquer death. And those words, if they don't strike you as Christian, they, they should, because as I just described, they, they not only show up you know, in the Christian message, message over and over and over again, that Jesus' death um, 
that the gift to 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 mankind through his death was to abolish death, to conquer death, and to give us immortality. Well, I mean, what does that mean? I mean, a, a Christian will tell you that that means that you'll live forever in heaven. Um, boy, I don't, I don't know. I mean, I don't know that I that I can go with that. Um, I don't know that that's exactly biblical. Um, you know, we could talk about what heaven means, and maybe it's semantics here. But I don't. I, I think that what what Jesus is saying here is something like what the Upanishads are saying here. You know, that Jesus was the God-man. He was, in the Christian tradition, he was God come to earth. And that, when, that by doing that, he conquered death for all of us. How is that different from the Upanishads saying that when you realize that there isn't a difference between God and the universe, between God and man, that you will conquer death? That's exactly what the, what the Christian message is. You see it in Timothy, you see it in Revelation. You also see it in Buddhism. You know, Buddha says, my disciple shall conquer this world and death with its attendant gods. He'll conquer even the gods. And the story of, of, of the Buddha, if you, have, if you guys don't uh, never heard it, is that when Buddha is, it has his mystic experience, uh, you know, the, what, what caused the Buddha to become the Buddha, you know, Siddhartha Gautama was his name. You know, when he became the Buddha, he was meditating under a tree, and, uh, you know, Buddha was a Hindu, by the way. So he was meditating on the types of things we've been talking about right now, on, about Brahma and Atman. He's meditating and he, and he, he becomes enlightened. Uh, he has this moment, whatever it is, this mystic experience, it doesn't exactly describe that he, he becomes enlightened. And that um, in the, um, you know, in this story, um, the gods, the Hindu gods, they come and they, they start like attacking the Buddha while he's meditating because he's getting closer and closer to reaching nirvana and the the gods of Hinduism they want to stop him from reaching nirvana according to the story but what happens is Buddha conquers even the gods because when he reaches nirvana he ascends even beyond the gods he becomes something entirely different he he unifies himself with brahma he becomes god um, this is the word nirvana that's used, this enlightenment idea. But that's what happened. That's what was, what, what was meant by it. It was a mystic experience where, where Siddhartha became God. And when he teaches this message to his, his disciples, this is, this is what he said. My disciples shall conquer this world and death with its attendant gods. It, you know, when you know yourself to be God, that you, you become greater than the gods. You know, you become uh, greater than, than life and death. All right, we'll keep, keep going here. Um, all right, so the next quote says, Brahma is known through knowledge and awareness. Through its knowledge, immortality. So this is just straightforward telling you. Um, awareness and experience. It says knowledge here, but again, it, we, it already told us that you can't read scriptures and, and know what Brahma is, that you have to experience it. So I think knowledge is what you get from experience. I think that's what, that's what they mean by this, that experience and awareness which are associated, both things are associated with consciousness, that through that knowledge, you'll get immortality. Something like that. All right, next, the next quote along these same lines says, um, O mankind, arise, awake, and realize the Atman. Having realized him, one is emancipated from the bondage of birth and death. 
So this is a call. Um, this is a religious call for everybody. Oh, mankind, arise, awake, and realize the Atman. To be awake is to be conscious. To realize the Atman is to know that yourself to be God. That's what it's saying. And then once you've realized him, once you know that you are God, um, that you will be emancipated from the bondage of birth and death. So when you realize you're God, that's when you become immortal. That's what Jesus said. That's what the Upanishads said. That's what Buddha said. What does that mean? Well, I, think it, I think it means something like this. If you know that everything is one, that there's only God, this is what the mystic experience tells you. If you know and you believe that in your heart of hearts, and all the feeling like you're separate from, from the rest of the cosmos, and you understand that to just be illusion, that when you, when you know that, you know that when your body perishes, when I die, that being the thing that I am, the thing that I'm a manifestation of, that, that doesn't go away. Uh, life, you know, life, that doesn't go away. It's, and it's not just that I'm leaving my kids, let's say, behind, and they're going to live for me, but all the other human beings in the world are living for me, and all the animals are living for me, and e even the things that aren't alive, all of material reality is living for me. And when I say me in this context, I'm talking about consciousness, I'm talking about God, that all of that continues, that it's immortal. You know, what uh, Isaac Newton told us, energy cannot be created or destroyed. It only changes from one form to another. That this is what's happening here. There is no birth and death. And when you know that you're God, that makes sense to you. That finally makes sense. And then understanding yourself to be immortal has nothing to do with the body. It has nothing to do with being resurrected in your body the way Christians will tell you. It has nothing to do with that. It has nothing to do with that at all. It's not about matter. It's that being continues and consciousness continues and that's the same thing that you are. And when you die and, and turn to dust, that that does not go away. That it is immortal. And when you know that, you become immortal. Alright, so it goes on to say this. Eternal peace belongs to those wise men who realize the supreme controller of all, the inner self of all, beings who, make, uh, who makes his one form manifold as existing within themselves and to no others. I'll read that again because I fucked that up. Eternal peace belongs to those wise men who realize the supreme controller of all, the inner self of all beings who makes his one form manifold as existing within themselves and no other. All right, so there's lots to talk about here, but the, um, you know, obviously he's making the point here that the uh, supreme controller of all and that the inner self of all, that that is God. He also says that it's one form made manifold. So earlier it said, you know, everyone is the same Atman. So God is this one thing. But that what that thing does is it makes itself many, makes itself manifold. And that's what we are. That's what being is. You know, God is many things. You know, he's the heavens and the earth. He's, he's life. He's all different kinds of life and different types of matter and energy and all the things that exist. God is manifold. That's what it's saying. Now, all of those things are one. They're different forms of the one thing that God is. I would call that consciousness. Now, the Gospel of Thomas, the Gnostic Gospel, um, says something along these lines, and it goes like this. Jesus said, let him who seeks continue seeking until he finds. Now that, that piece by itself is not going to strike you as unusual because we see that in the Bible already. Um, you know, it says, uh, 
you know, knock and it shall be opened, seek and you shall find. So, you know, that doesn't seem strange. So Jesus says, let him who seeks continue seeking until he finds. Here's where it gets weird. When he finds, he will become troubled. When he becomes troubled, he will be astonished and he will rule over the all. Say what? So, so he seek and continue to seek until he finds. Here it goes. When he finds, he becomes troubled. So what did he find that made him troubled? And when he becomes troubled, he, he becomes astonished. Okay, so what, what did he find exactly? What, what, what he was seeking? What did he find that made him troubled and astonished? And the thing that makes him troubled and astonished allows him to rule over the all, and all with a capital A. So that, that again, usually indicates God. So here's, here's where I'm going with this. Where the Upanishad says that the wise man realizes that the supreme controller of all and the inner self of all is, is within themselves, that, that God is within yourself, that this is, what, this is what Jesus is talking about in the Gospel of Thomas. He says, when you find that you are God, so you're seeking, what are you seeking? You're seeking to figure out what it is you are. What am I? You want to know yourself. What the hell am What is a human being? What am I? That when you figure that out finally, you realize that you are God. When you find out you're God, you'll become troubled. Because what the hell does that mean? What kind of responsibility does that put on my shoulders? I'm God? What now? Jesus Christ, what now? So of course you become troubled. And when you become troubled, you become astonished. What do, what do you mean, I am God? How can I be God? I am God? Fuck, yeah, that's an astonishing thing to say. So, of course, yes, that kind of a religious epiphany will make you troubled. It will make you astonished. But when you realize that, you will rule over the all. Wow. Well, I don't know what that means exactly. That you realize you're God and then suddenly you, 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 know, you realize that you are responsible for everything that exists, that, that you created it somehow, you personally, the person speaking and the person hearing this right now, us, we did this. We created the universe, bro. So this is what this is what I think it's saying, and the fact that these these very early Christian texts that were written before the Catholic Church existed and before the the Church cracked down on the dogma that says something like this: you continue to seek until you find, and when you find, you become troubled. When you become troubled, you'll be astonished, and then you will rule over the all. That those words came out of Jesus's mouth. Whew. I don't know about you. But that's interesting. All right, just uh, just a few more. We'll be almost done here. There's a Upanishad that's called, it's towards the end here. It's called the uh, Atariya, and it says, "All have consciousness, or prajna. The whole universe is founded on prajna, and therefore prajna is Brahman. One who has realized this has become immortal." Okay, so this is basically saying everything we've already said, but now it's explicitly, it's explicitly using this word uh, prajna, which means life force. It means something like the thing that makes you alive, but, it, but it, it also has a connotation like consciousness, because again, that word didn't exactly exist in the Sanskrit. So it's, it says everybody has prajna. This is consciousness. The whole universe is founded on consciousness, and therefore consciousness is God. One who has realized this becomes immortal. And the idea here is, again, as long as there's a conscious creature, um, then consciousness survives. It's immortal. 
And even, even stranger than that, even if there wasn't life, even if there wasn't consciousness, the, the, you know, a conscious living being, the fact that God is all there is, again, as the mystic experience and the Upanishads tell you, then as long as there's anything, any material, uh, any matter or, or, or any energy, as long as there's anything like that in the cosmos, as long as there's a cosmos, that there's consciousness, because all of that is made of consciousness. And consciousness will continue to be birthed, or material reality will continue to be birthed from consciousness, just like they were describing in the Upanishads about uh, being sprouting out like a hair from, from, you know, from your body. That's what consciousness is, okay? All right, so the last one here, it says, this body dies for sure when the living self leaves it. But the living self does not die. So this is the last um, Upanishad scripture I'm going to read to you. This body dies for sure when the living self leaves it, but the living self does not die. So this is them admitting here that when they say that you will, that you, by having this knowledge, will become immortal, it's not saying that you won't die. It's not saying that. Um, and then you can, you know, you, you can see some of that stuff in the Bible too, where, uh, where there's passages like, um, um, I can't remember specifically, but it says something like, um, uh, that the, the apostles in their lifetime, that not, that, that they'll still be alive when the kingdom of, he- of heaven comes or something like that. There's, there's some other things that I probably should, should have, uh, should have got to contrast this to, but I did pull something from the gospel of Thomas, um, for this. And, and this is how it goes. And he said, whoever, whoever finds the interpretation of these sayings will not experience death. And then, of course, the, the trusty John 3.16, which says, For God so loved the world, he gave his only begotten Son, for whoever believeth in him shall not perish, but have everlasting life. So again, the Gospel of Thomas, who's, again, very mystical and saying that, you know, we are God, that you can find the kingdom of God within yourself or God within yourself. The same thing the Upanishads are saying. Uh, it specifically says that when you when you find the interpretation of of the sayings in the Book of Thomas, that you will not experience death. And John says the same thing: Whoever believeth in him shall not perish, but have everlasting life. Whoever believeth in what, in Jesus, in the God Man, whoever believes that God came to Earth as a man, whoever believes that man is God on Earth. Something like that. We're all conscious creatures. Uh, again, the Hinduism or the Upanishads use the words prajna to mean that. And that's what it's saying. So anyway, interesting, but, but God, the idea here is that achieving immortality or, or conquering death, that this is the kind of religious epiphany uh, that, we, that we are one with God. That, that as we continue, as being continues, even after the death of the body, as life continues, that we are a manifestation of the force that created reality within, uh, existing within ourself, you know, God within God, a fractal pattern within a pattern. And to know this is to understand that death is an illusion. It's a matter of perspective, it's a, it's a, you know, it's a reflection of the fractured nature of embodied consciousness. That the fact that we realize that, that we don't realize, let's say, that we're one with our neighbor, that we're one with our children, that we're one with our ancestors, let's say, that it makes us think we're, 
we're you know isolated and that when we die uh, you know it's the it's the the infinite sleep it's the long sleep um but that's not what what religious intuition tells us you know we're constantly bombarded with the idea that there's an afterlife um and i'm not sure i i go all the way with an with an afterlife in the in the dogmatic sense but what i do what i do agree with and is this idea of atman returning to brahman um you know that that uh that there's immortality in that, that there's immortality in being and in consciousness. Uh, that's what you are. That's what I am. What do you think of that? Well, there you have it. That's one avenue explored, but infinitely more still to go. I hope you enjoyed thinking along with us. I know, I know. It's not easy work thinking it's hard and full of uncertainties but i'm grateful for the company as we trek through this together here's to hoping that the juice is worth the squeeze see what i did there let's find out together in the next episode